What are your writing dreams? Finishing that book, quitting the day job, becoming a best-selling author? Well, over four years, we've studied the advice of over 300 best-selling authors who've collectively sold over half a billion books. And we are excited to announce the Best Seller Academy. If you're ready to take your writing to the next level with accountability, craft, and coaching, your bestseller dreams are now only a click away. To find out more and apply, visit bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. That's bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. Let's run the show. Hello and welcome to the Bestseller Experiment, where we continue to discover what makes a bestseller and inspire you to start, finish and publish your book. I'm Mark DeVoe. And I am Mark Stay. And as always, a huge thank you to our Bestseller Academies and patrons on Patreon and to everyone listening for keeping this show going. We simply could not do it without your support. If you want to uh, get involved with the Academy, go to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash Academy. Uh, you can find us there. If you want to support the show, go to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support. And you can find us over on Patreon as well. It's what keeps us keeps fueling our tank, uh, which we all need these days. So, well, Mr. We do. D, how are you today, sir? It, it's great. And how much has fuel gone up recently? Goodness me. All-time highs oh, here in Canada. Oh, and we invented the stuff apparently over here, but <laughs> Well, my wife is uh, my wife is feeling particularly smug because she has a Nissan Leaf uh, oh, which costs about yes. 20p a day to recharge. <laughs> so she's pootling around all over the place. She loves it. She 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 laughs as she drives by petrol stations. <laughs> it's the future it's the future i envisage the the road the story of the road and like all these people in electric vehicles driving <laughs> past all these old oil-based vehicles on the side of the highways but uh, yeah it's brilliant stuff i hear you've had a bit of an interesting week mr stay another screening tell them tell me about what happened there well we had a we had a cast and crew screening for uh my film unwelcome which is coming out really soon now it's like the it's um the premiere will be on the 17th of March, which is St. Patrick's Day, and then general release in the UK and the US on the 18th of March. Rest of the world, not sure yet. Stand by. We might have an announcement soon. Um, also, uh, so, yes, we had a um, had a wonderful cast and crew screening. We've had screenings before, sort of heads of departments and things like that, but this was uh, everyone who's involved in the film was invited. And what's, what's lovely about it is... Um, you know, if you're working on a film and you're in the costume department or you're in makeup or you had one scene early on in the film, you won't have seen the whole thing come together. So for a lot of these people, they're seeing it for the very, very first time. And the reactions you get are just amazing, particularly with the ending, because the ending is is quite bonkers. So <laughs> it was great getting getting those reactions back from people. And it's all starting to ramp up it's all starting to feel very very real we've got um so the u.s distributor has just opened a whole bunch of new social media accounts on instagram twitter and facebook for the film i'll, I'll pop those in the show notes if you want to check those out um so it's you know there's little snippets and clips getting out there now um we did that <laughs> it is now <laughs> eagle-eared listeners that's not a thing, is it? Um, we'll, have, we'll remember from, from from the last episode that we said, oh, there's going to be a big announcement. Well, that announcement has been bumped to uh, early in February. So for reasons that will become obvious with the world around us. Um, but so hope, hoping to have some really big news about the film 
um, early next month. But yeah, it's all getting really real. It's getting really it's, real. It's getting really real, isn't it? Big countdown. Now, we've been documenting. For any new listeners of this podcast, obviously this is a writing podcast, but Mark's had uh, a lot of experience in film, writes lots of screenplays and the like. And we've been documenting Mark's journey as a little side like, subplot to the podcast for probably, it feels like forever now, but I know it's probably been about a year and a half or so from when you first kind of came up with the idea and you were kind of mentioning that you're working on a script um, to to actually getting the film signed, uh, a deal with it, then it being Warner, distributing it and getting, you know, all the announcements of all the amazing actors, lots of Game of Thrones actors in there and some famous, <laughs> some famous actors like Colin Meany. And, um, but what's... We also, I think, I don't, I think it's about, quite about five, six months ago now, you did a kind of private screening, like you mentioned, which was like looking at the first cut of the movie with the heads of department. I'm curious, as part of our little documentation, little documentary we're doing, I'm curious from the outside, what is it like when you're sitting in a room with all the actors? How does that different from when you're kind of sitting there biting your nails, hoping that the heads of department go, we love it. We're going to, we're going to run with this. Um, it's, it's a much more celebratory kind of screening as, as a, it's a lot more, um, relaxed because it's done. It's done. It's in the can basically, you know, it's, uh, this is what's going out there. So you can sort of sit back and, and just, and it's, uh, in some ways it's, 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 it's like a, a birthday party for the film before the premiere, before it, you know, comes out in its fancy dress and says hello to everyone, everyone who's worked on it. See, the other thing with this film, we haven't had a rap party because of COVID. So we've never had that big celebration. And so, you know, afterwards, people went off. We couldn't have a party today because of COVID or whatever. Um, so people went off, you know, in different... So a few of us went to a pub around the corner and stuff like that, but it had a lovely kind of end-of-term feel to it, you know, and uh, it reminded me of sitting there going, this is really good. You know, it kind of reminded me of, of, oh, this is actually a good film. I should be proud of this, you know, which sounds weird, but I sort of, you know, you can forget that sometimes, you know. Um, so it was, it was, it was lovely. Yeah. Well, I think it's, it must be such a surreal experience as someone having written it. Cause I was thinking to myself, when you're sitting watching the movie, you're a bit like watching the karaoke ABBA movies where you're, you know the next line that's coming up. I mean, you probably know the script obviously better than anyone else. And it must be a very surreal, like, do you have those moments where like when you're sitting there and you've got all the actors around you, do you have a pinch me moment where you think, bloody hell, I actually wrote this and, and, and it's been created into this. And I'm surrounded by all these people who actually have been a part of that. What, what's that feeling like? Cause that must just be a very, very surreal experience. It is. And you don't, always appreciate it in the moment it was only you know you it, it's where it's afterwards actually it's afterwards when people come up and actors go wow you know and they see the bits that they weren't involved with and they start talking about it and and the thing is you realize that what happens when you make a film is you make a little community of two, three hundred people who are all pulling in the same direction, all doing the same thing, all, you know, putting their all into it, giving their everything to create something extraordinary. I mean, there's the the the, the creatures in it, just as an example, you know, the 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 little people, the red caps. Pretty much every single department has 
some kind of input into making them real. So you've got actors in there, there's costumes in there, there's set design is involved in there, there's VFX, there's sound. Uh, you know, there's some, every department has gone into making, creating this illusion. Uh, in the film and it's it's just such a wonderful thing where i was you know when I'm, john and i were working on the story and i was writing the script and i'm cackling to myself going hee this is going to be a good bit and their their challenge is to make that a reality and i'm always blown away by it and and just sitting in the room with the the people who did that who you know created wonderful costumes or did the hair or the you know des- designed the incredible sets or did the mind boggling visual effects and you know it's some um, it's 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 a real privilege it's um and it's something i'm never going to get bored of it but it's i don't know i mean you'll know this it's it's one of these things when you have an amazing moment it's only sometimes when you look back that you appreciate how uh amazing it was it can be a bit of an out of body experience i think you're right yeah i think that's very true i think i think you could you could look at that in many i mean i don't know if you remember back to your wedding day but i remember my whole wedding day just being a massive blur and it was only the next morning you wake up and think, hang on a minute, <laughs> what's this on my finger? And it's, um, I think, I mean, that's just one example, but I think when you look back, say, at your, your whole school experience, when you're immersed in it day to day and it's just your life, but when you look back on it, you think, oh, those days of school and, you know, nostalgically you forget about all the challenges that you had and you think about all the nostalgic, wonderful things. And yeah, so it's 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 very interesting. So and then, of course, once it's out, you'll have the kind of whole circus of the the promotion, and that'll all be another new phase of it. And and at some point in the near, you know, in the distant future, maybe you'll be able to sit back and go, "Wow, that was an incredible experience." And uh, and like you say, building on. Well, that I mean, I, I look back on Robert Overlords. Like uh, we did an event at the Apple Store in Regent Street in London, and I'm wait. Ben Kingsley's about to go on and be interviewed by Chris Hewitt from Empire Magazine, and it's you know, and we're all backstage with Sir Ben. And just before they show the trailer, just before we went on, and and Ben Kingsley leans over and whispers in my ear and says, "Whoever thought of putting a Spitfire in the movie is a genius." And I went, "Oh, that was me." <laughs> and, and then he walked on, and it's it's like the rest of the day it was a complete blur. But that <laughs> I I will remember to my dying day. You know, Ben Kingsley. You know, it's just astonishing. Yeah, it's just weird little moments like that. So it's worth all the all the decades of rejection that came. Well, exactly, <laughs> and that's the point. We've gone to the important bit of this podcast. Yeah, that yeah, yeah. You don't get to this moment. You don't get to enjoy the fruits of your labour without having gone through the rejections, the hard times. And that, and that and continues, obviously. It never stops. But, you know, just to say to everyone, like, we're, we're documenting Mark's journey on the podcast because it's a celebration. We talk about celebrating the good things in life, celebrating the, the successes that we have. And it's a reminder to everyone out there who's writing, who's struggling on their novel, who's just been rejected for the sixth or 50th time. It's a reminder to say, it's just a point in time. A rejection is just a point in time and it leads you to bigger and better things. And uh, so never to be disheartened and and don't ever give up because as we've said in this podcast way too many times already, that's the only point of failure. The, the moment of failure is when you choose to stop writing because until you, and if you keep writing, there's always success waiting for you down the, down, down the line. So, so keep it up folks, keep on going keep on writing. Um, and we should mention actually for people who are struggling with their writing, you know, we're beginning of a new year. 
a lot of people are jumping into the 200 word challenge and we do mention this a lot but we know a lot of people still haven't tried it so if you're new to the podcast or if you tried it before and you you fell off the wagon as happens get back on it 200wordchallenge.com right every day 200 words that's really how your film scripts and books come about mark as well so it's works for me right i'm there, there every day I'm there right every there, day. Proof yep. in the pudding. Yep. Brilliant stuff. We have a fascinating interview today, Mark. Tell us about the wonderful Laurie Ann Stevens. Yes. Laurie Ann Stevens is the author of Blue Running, which is a near future thriller that follows the coming of age story of Blue Bonnet Andrews, who goes on the run after accidentally killing her best friend with a gun that she's too young to know how to use. But in this imaginary near future world, she's forced to carry by by, by law. And the book delves into, the brace yourselves, a few trigger warnings here, book delves into gun law, abortion, fundamentalism, big walls in Texas, you know, all that light and fluffy stuff that, um, uh, you know, people love to talk about over dinner. <laughs> and so we discuss with Laurie, we discuss writing about what you fear and how to cope with that, finding empathy when writing about those that we might find objectionable or difficult, problematic and her bumpy road to publication wonderful so brace yourself folks this is a this is a really deep interview so uh you know it's it's fascinating enjoy you'll get so much from this let's have a listen to mark chatting to laurie ann stevens laurie ann stevens welcome to the bestseller experiment how are you today i'm great thank you so much for having me here it's our absolute pleasure. And we're here primarily to talk about your your new novel, Blue Running, which is absolutely fascinating. This is um this is a book that 20 years ago might have been considered science fiction, you know, sort of dystopian science fiction. But now looking at the news, it seems um well, tell us about Blue Running and, and where the idea came from. So yeah, I think you're totally right. It it was science fiction-y. In fact, it was sort of fantasy in my mind too when I started writing it. Um, you know, even a matter of a few years ago, um I couldn't imagine that we are here where we are today. I mean, I guess I could imagine it, but but I wouldn't think it was possible, really. Um, but I, I did start writing it around the time Trump um was on the campaign trail. And I started seeing um, people behave differently um, in Texas because I'm from Texas. Um, we started seeing more um, aggressive uh, signs, um, hate, hateful signs, hateful speech, and um, in a real. Um, it's like the extremists were invigorated by his by his um, by Trump's rhetoric. So I sat down and started writing this story and and really what came first was the republic like what would happen if texas did secede because people have been talking about that you know fringe um, elements have talked about that for quite a while um but it really doesn't make the news um i thought what what would happen if if we did secede if we saw that that the united states was you know, much too liberal for um, what Texas um, traditionalists wanted. And um, and if that happened, then, of course, the first thing I thought of was, you know, the, the infrastructure would crumble without the federal um, monies. And, um, you know, the wall would be built and extended around Texas. Um, abortion, obviously, would be illegal, probably punishable by death. 
and um, as well as other crimes, um, LGBT uh, people would not be tolerated. And it's sort of like the Christian version of Sharia law, you know, just sort of like extremist by the book laws. And, um, and of course, guns then would need to be mandatory because there wouldn't be enough police to protect um, the people, especially in rural areas. And in rural areas, people, um, you know, guns are very common and often like needed to protect your property because there are no police around. But more so, not even to protect your property. It's really to shoot like rattlesnakes <laughs> and copperheads. Um, and then I just dropped this little girl into this society. And I thought, well, what would happen? And, you know, what does happen when, when girls are raised in this sort of um, environment? And um, I wanted to give them strength and hope and determination and um, see what would happen. So, yeah, that was the origin of the story. Tell us about this girl. Uh, is it Blue Bonnet or Blue Bonnet? Blue Bonnet Andrews? Tell us about it's, So it's Blue Bonnet. Blue Bonnet. Um, that's the uh, state flower of Texas. Ah. It's a beautiful flower, and there's a really strong uh, widespread tradition. Every spring, families take their uh, children to Blue Bonnet Fields and right. um, take family pictures and post them on social media. And it's just really, it's really gorgeous. Um, so she's named after the state flower. Um, and she's very young when this, um, when Texas secedes. So she's, um, she's grown up with this for about 10 years. Her mother has left. She escaped with the last of the escapees once before the borders closed. Um, but, uh, well, I don't want to give anything mm-hmm. away, but she's mm-hmm. gone. And, uh, so she's just raised by her father who is an alcoholic, um, suffering from depression, from being abandoned by his wife and also from poverty that they are facing. Um, and he is a deputy with big dreams to become a ranger and, and that hasn't happened yet. So Blue Bonnet really has to take care of her father. She has to uh, play the adult role. Um, but she's very much still a child. She's very innocent and naive, um, growing up in this really small town, which I thought was completely made up. It's called Blessing. And it wasn't until after I, I published the book that, <laughs> that I found out that there was a, like a district called called Blessing. So it's not that blessing. <laughs> I've never been there. <laughs> so um, yeah, so Blue Blue Bonnet grows up and, and, and guns are normal for her. Um, everybody has to uh, carry a gun. Well, normal, it's normalized in the society, but she's never... She's never felt comfortable with guns. Um, and that's that's me coming through. It's normalized in my society. I've held a gun. I've shot shot a gun. And I've never felt comfortable with guns, being around guns. And um, so sure enough, when she and her, her best friend are together cleaning guns, the gun goes off and she's accused of, of murder and has to go on the run um, because she doesn't trust um, her father or the system to believe her and save her from this fate. And the only thing she can think of is crossing the border. Um, at first she's, she's not even sure where she's going. She's just running. And, um, once she hooks up with, uh, this other girl who's on the run, um, they decide to go to the border and, um, that's, that's the whole story. (laughs) Wow. Wow. This sounds like Every single one of your nightmares packed into three hundred pages. Uh, was it was it a cathartic process writing the book? Was it sort of getting getting a gracious fears onto the page? 
It was, it was cathartic, but it was also really scary. Like as I was writing it, even after I wrote it, you know, I'd, I'd write these scenes and, you know, I'd feel jittery and excited that I had gotten something down on the page that I felt was visual and, um, and had good pacing, you know, all of those, mm-hmm. um, writerly, um, aspects, but also I was, there, there was something, um, something fearful about the whole thing. And even now, as I, as I write about, as I'm doing interviews and things, I I have this jittery feeling that's not comfortable (laughs) because I'm always sort of thinking about how people will react. Mm. Um, Yeah. It's um, and then of course the scenes themselves, as I'm writing them, a lot of them are based on real events. Um, for instance, the the original shooting, the accident uh, with her best friend, I didn't realize it really until after I finished. In fact, well after I finished that scene, it was when I was talking to somebody about the book much later that really this scene was based on an accident that happened um, to my little sister's boyfriend when she was 14. He was cleaning his rifle and he his gun went off and he shot himself in the stomach and he died and she had just spoken to him the evening before and um the principal ended up having to go to the the house and break the news because it was a sort of small school private school and um and he broke the news to my mom who then told my sister and after that she sort of went off the rails she was devastated and took a few years for her to sort of circle back and and find a place of, of comfort again. And mean, in the meantime, she's, she's seven years younger than I am. And I heard this right when I was pregnant with my first child. So I sort of, I wasn't living at home. I registered it. I felt horrible. I contacted my sister, but then I filed it away because, you know, something so devastating when you're trying, you know, when you're, when you're a new mother, you know, you're, you're really trying to focus on, you know, what's before you. And, um, so it wasn't until much later that that sort of came out. I was, I was like, wow, that this really, um, really resonated in a very deep part of me, and it came out. How do you cope with that fear when you're writing? Um, well, I think that as a writer, you have to you have to ignore the fear as you're writing and just put it on the page. Um, I think some of the best writing comes from fear out of a place of fear. Um, We all have to confront our demons, face them, fight them and, and and put them down on the page. Um, Because I think that that is what touches the readers who are also facing demons and they're not able to speak about it. And so when they read it, that's a really um, deep, profound connection that the reader can have with the story, the character, and then, of course, by extension, the writer. Mm. Wow. Uh, There was a quote I saw from you, which really fascinated me. uh, The quote is, I I straddle two worlds, Uh, the world of my gun-toting brother who lives in the countryside and encounters rattlesnakes and wild boars on a regular basis, and the world of my university colleagues who live in the city and overwhelmingly support stronger gun control laws. And this, being someone who's had experiences in both worlds, did that help with Blue Running? And in particular, were you able to find empathy 
and humanity with people whose ideologies you might find objectionable. So, you know, you talked about that kind of fanatical Trump supporter. Can you, you know, did that help you? It's very easy to make those kind of people caricatures in fiction. Were you able, how were you able to avoid that? Well, it's funny because when I first started writing the book, I was thinking, I was approaching it as a satire, sort of like Huck right. Finn as he goes down the river and, and interacts with these people, <laughs> mm. um, you know, he doesn't understand, um, but does understand at the same time. Um, but I did want to make sure that um, these people in Texas weren't caricatures because, I mean, my brother is not a caricature. My, I, mm. I adore my brother. He's the kindest, most giving, loving person uh, with a beautiful family. And uh, I trust him with my life. Absolutely. Um, over there and um, at, in the countryside <laughs> and here, wherever. Um, he's very reasonable, calm. Um, so it really is incongruous to think that um, that he might vote for Trump <laughs> or that his family might vote for Trump. And so for me, I, I keep um, I keep reminding myself, I really do have to keep reminding myself and my children, you know, as they're growing up, you know, you can't pigeonhole people into certain, you know, categories. You cannot stereotype them. You can't stereotype all gun owners because they are, they are real people. And mm. even if we have very deep differences, um, you know, they're, they're people who, um, you know, are, are doing what they think is the best they can. And so the only way that you can, um, talk to them and really reach them is to talk to them, to, to listen to them, to listen mm, to them yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. and um, see where they're coming from. Um, I think that a lot of um, people who vote for Trump were voting because they are sort of desperate financially mm. and they feel that the that the government no longer listens to them, that hasn't listened to them, that have only they've only catered to and protected a certain group of people, and um, that that group doesn't include them. Mm. So um, I, you know, I think that because you have that that sort of um, person who's voting for Trump, and then you have the fringe extremists. I think I think the problem is similar to just saying uh, the, the Christian saying, "Oh, all Muslims are terrorists." I mean, you cannot lump a group of people with the most extreme element of yeah. that group. So um, that was important to me as I was writing the book. And I, I tried to include people in the people that blue runs into and who care about her. I wanted to be sure that she, that they weren't necessarily <laughs> caricatures that they, um, you know, came from a place of, of, of hurt, of dreams, of longings, and um, and like true Texans want to just help each other and be mm. nice to each other. But sometimes, you know, that doesn't happen. <laughs> well, te Texas, Texas is the friendly state, isn't it? People hold it doors open for motto. you. And, yeah, 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 mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Yeah, my husband's French and, and he's lived here for a while. And he said, um, you know, his French friends are like, how can you live in Texas? And, and he's like, it's so nice. I mean, people, <laughs> you know, you go to the grocery store and the cashier asks you how you're doing and, and they get to know you. They recognize you. They have a conversation. The, the waitresses are really sweet. I mean, they're, they're, you know, 
just nice. (laughs) (laughs) Has your brother read the book? He has not read the book. I have sort of warned my family about it. I was the first thing I said, I mean, they've read all of my books. They're very supportive. Um, and even the, the most recent one, which was really, really difficult. It was um, based on my own life about abuse and, um, and they read that. And so (laughs) that was very important to me. Um, and, and for this book, I just simply told them, you're not going to like this book because (laughs) you might not, you might want to skip this one. Um, but my mother being the dear mother that she is said, well, we have to read everything because we need to understand everybody's points of view. (laughs) So, um, so yes, my mother has it. My little sister's read it, um, or she has it. Um, and so I don't know that my brother has read it, but I'm sure he will. Okay. Good, 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 good. Fantastic stuff. Um, let's talk about your journey to publication, uh, because you've, as you say, you've written very personal books previously. Uh, so you've got Some Act of Vision and Song of the Orange Moons, and they were published by small independent publishers. What was your road to publication with them? Because I understand it was, you were telling me before we started recording. It was bumpy. <laughs> it, 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 was, it was the dream came true and then the dream sort of turned a, a little sour. Can, can you tell us yeah. about that, please, Laurie? So um, shortly after um, graduate school, I, I got an offer on my first book. Uh, that was um, Song of the Orange Moons. And um, it was by a, a small traditional press in Austin. And it had published a lot, uh, had a long history of um, lovely children's books. But this was definitely not a children's book. And they wanted to branch out into adult books. So this was their adult debut in my debut for literary fiction and um just a matter of months after it was published um the the press folded and i got a a phone call from um from the owner and she was explaining everything and and like that my book was remaindered i had the choice to buy all of them Um, so there was this warehouse of of hardback books. And so it was just really heartbreaking because yeah. before it could get sort of off the ground, it, um, it, it folded. So, um, after a while, after, you know, months or even years of sort of processing that I, um, went ahead and I had the rights back. So I self-published that. Um, and then the, the, the same thing happened, sort of uh, a similar thing happened with the second book, which, um, won a national award, a reader's choice award, um, but um, it, that was uh, some Activision, and um, it was also uh, bought by a small press, an indie press, and then that folded after a few years um, or a year, maybe. I can't remember how long it was. Um, so now I have another book with um, a small press in California that has not folded, so she has broken the, <laughs> the spell. The time's and, a charm. Uh, yeah, that's Novali in the Spider Secret. And then, um, yeah, so now I have I, I, I have this wonderful press in the UK. So this is my sort of debut in the UK, and it's been phenomenal. I have never, ever um, experienced or heard of any other press that has invested so much energy into um, a book and they were so excited about it and just um, really made me feel loved and made me feel like blue was loved. And so this is all very exciting. (laughs) This is, this is Moonflower books, isn't it? 
Yes, Moonflower Books. Wonderful. And you came to the UK recently. What was that experience like? So it was, um, I thought it was going to be super difficult to get into the country because of, of, of COVID um, regulations, but I did, I followed all of my steps and I, I was able to enter very easily and uh, a lovely friend of mine, Andrea, hosted me there. And um, I stayed for a week and did interviews on BBC, several BBC radio programs, which was terrifying because it was live <laughs> and um, did some interviews and then um, was treated um, like a queen um, by the publishers uh, for lunch. And, and yeah, so just sort of enjoyed uh, walking around hunting for the book in bookstores um, after the release date and, um, and just enjoyed the time there. That must have been particularly sweet after having, yeah, after your previous experiences. That must have been, um, it, it was worth the wait, I guess. Absolutely. It was, it was like really, I mean, I hate this cliche, but it really was like a dream. It was heavenly to be there the entire <laughs> week and everything went off without a hitch. And so, um, yeah, I, it was a charmed visit. Wonderful. We're obsessed on this podcast with writing routines and habits. Um, What's your writing day like, Laurie? When do you start? Do you do you write every day? Are you write every day kind of person? I don't write every day. I I buck that trend maybe because I'm a professor and um, I have to put my mind in a certain spot and give it 100%. So in general, I have to um, uh, you know focus on my lectures and grading and all of that as any mm. teacher would tell you mm. and um i do know teachers who will write a, you know a little in the morning like at 5 a.m they'll have a routine and they'll write every morning but um and and i have done that in the past but just in this past i think covid took something out of my attention span and um i'm i'm only especially because we're learning new we were learning new prep platforms teaching online and all of that um, so I haven't been writing every day and, but what is normal is, um, you know, teachers have these long breaks and professors have even longer breaks because, um, you know, our, our classes generally end at the beginning of December and then we don't go back until late January. And then we have all of the summer off, like almost three months of the summer. So, um, I, I write books, whole books in those times. So I'll sit wow. down and sort of write, you know, page by page. In the summer, I tend to just write the whole book or write half of the book and then finish it by the next year. Wow. Wow. Fantastic. There's something, yeah, there's something about being in the zone and, and being intense. Yeah. And if you do it every day, once you're there, it's you can just start off, you know, where you left off rather than um, spend an hour backspacing and, you know, piddling around on the keyboard before <laughs> <laughs> you it, actually start writing. <laughs> Is it, is it difficult to get that momentum going after, you know, you're doing, and again, we salute all teachers and professors and lecturers, particularly over the last 20 months, we're, I'm amazed any of you can even function, um, frankly. Um, but having, having you know, had this intense period of teaching and lecturing and, and school and university or whatever, and then you sit down and suddenly you've got to write fiction, you'd have lost momentum in that time. Is it difficult to pick that momentum up or are there ideas ticking away in the background? during your, your teaching hours? I mean, there are definitely ideas ticking away and I do jot down ideas, um, in my, in my notepad and my, in, you know, in my phone and, and other places, I'll, I'll, like a whole story will come to me and I'll, I'll jot it, jot it down, like summarize it and then file it away in a folder of story ideas. Um, but not really. I mean, when I sit down, 
And I know like my, my head is in that space, you know, like this is my time. I don't have anything else to do. Let's do it. Mm-hmm. It's pretty easy to get into that mode. And, um, you know, I just type until I'm on empty for the day, right. which can be, I mean, sometimes I write up to eight hours. So, um, and, and just sort of eat as I'm typing. And a lot of that, because I'm a self editor, I will backspace a lot and rewrite sentences. I can spend, you know, an hour on a couple of sentences. Um, <laughs> <laughs> embarrassingly. <laughs> but I mean, it works for me because when I'm done with a chapter, it really feels, it's, it doesn't feel like a hot mess. It feels like it's something cohesive. Excellent. Excellent stuff. What's coming next for me, Laurie? So what's coming next? I'm working on uh, a sister novel um, about a a much older sister. See, you can see the sort of biographical (laughs) characterization. (laughs) Um, No, but that's where it ends. An older sister who is, um, hasn't been able to get pregnant and her younger sister who is a sort of 'er ne'er-do-well teen who um, uh, sort of shows up on her doorstep pregnant. Uh, no, not pregnant, with a baby, and the older sister wants the baby. So this is a, a very tense sort of um, relationship book. <laughs> Wonderful. Oh, it sounds fantastic. Folks, Blue Running is out there now. Uh, do grab a copy as soon as you can. Uh, Laurie, thank you so much for speaking to us today and really looking forward to what's coming next and hope to speak to you again soon. Thank you so much. I had a lot of fun. Wow. Whew. I just need to... Mm. Uh, Take a moment there, Mark. That was, <laughs> do you know, I love, I love these types of interviews because this really gets to the nub of so much of the reasons why people write. Yeah, absolutely. And this thing of writing about what you fear and her adv- advice is to ignore the fear. The best writing comes from fear. Um, but it's, uh, I, I think if you're frightening yourself, then you probably think you are onto something important you know you're you're tackling issues that that scare you and that that's all about writing from a place of truth and it's writing from a place of, i mean I, I i had slightly different thing but unwelcome even though it's a film about goblins it comes from a thing that myself and my family were very very scared of that felt very re- real to us about you know being feeling safe in our own home um, and it was a question of, do I go there? And I think the answer always is lean into it, lean into it, do the scary thing, you know? Yeah. I think it's really fascinating because fear is such a root emotion. And when we talk about writing, it is about connecting with the reader emotionally so that when we come from fear, we're instantly doing that. And we don't have to try. We don't have to try. We don't have to imagine it. We feel it. We know it deep, deep in our psyche. And, and the thing is, fear is a universal um, emotion as well as love is. And really kind of love and fear are kind of, I guess, two, the two opposites on that spectrum. So I love this idea. I found it really interesting when Laurie's talking about writing her worst nightmare. And I remember on the Academy, uh, we've had this discussion a few times it's come up where people have talked about having to write really difficult scenes, which have actually really disturbed them. And have actually, they've actually needed a kind of a moment to kind of, not moment, sometimes a few days just to take a break to almost 
deal with the emotional triggers that it might come up in their life, maybe just from a pure imaginary fearful place they live in, or from something that has actually happened to them or in someone else's life, which is which which triggers those emotions which they've experienced before. And I, I mean, it's a big topic to delve into, but in my in my world, I find that a very fascinating area because it, in some ways it can actually be a hard place for writers to go um, when you kind of cross that line. It's all very well writing a fluffy, fun novel and, you know, having a bit of fun. But when you get to those really core, important, life-changing type subjects, um, fear can actually be a real challenge. And I'm sure a lot of writers right now are kind of nodding their heads going, yeah, I've been there or I don't want to go there because of that. What's been your experience with that when you've actually lent into it and gone there? Well, it's it's scary enough just putting something like that onto the page. It's that thing of then putting it out into the public domain for people to read. And as we've discovered, you know, social media, um, people will come at you. You know, if it's something that they, um, I mean, we we sort of had a tiny taste of that back to reality. You know, our single, we've got one one star. I might might, might be tempting fate here. I got us. We've got a single one star review, and it's the most liked or most popular review on the Amazon.com website. And it took it took us to task because of you know how they perceived the politics of the book. Um, obviously, you know this. War of a duck's back with with us, but I, something like this with Laurie, you know, saying to her what her family thinks about this, what friends might think about this, um, and it's it can be it, it exposes you to um, more than just criticism because it's not someone saying oh, I don't like your writing; it's someone saying. I don't like where you're coming from. Yeah, I don't or, like the way you see the world. I don't yeah. like the way you perceive, you know, the world or around worse, us. worse, it's like you're wrong or I'm going to, you know, throw eggs at you or mm. worse. And I could hear that. It's interesting in, in when Laurie was talking about it, I could hear very much within that intrepidation that she had, even since she's written it, you know, she's saying, you know, putting it out to the world, what would her family think of it? I mean, that's, that's always a way of really personalizing it. You know, when you think about people that you love and you have an emotional and a very, you know, intricate connection within your life what they will make of it how they might view you see you based on maybe the views that they and the problem is is that people when you write i mean you can write from the opposition or the opposite viewpoint as the author you can choose any viewpoint you, you, you know you discussed that with laurie about getting into the head of of someone that you maybe don't agree with and writing so the great thing about being a writer is you can choose which perspectives you want to write from the challenge is is if the reader believes that's your perspective and then comes at you because of that yes i think that's a big challenge and that's why a lot of yeah. authors sometimes don't go there yeah and i, I you know you, there's no accounting for the way perceive people perceive if they don't understand that if you write a character as racist, that doesn't make you a racist. If you write a character that is violent, that doesn't make you a violent person. Obviously, you're making this stuff up. So if people don't understand that, what can you do? You know, you just have to walk away from that that conversation. But I think um, when you're writing about something that is very close to you, you you have a choice. First first is, is uh, a tonal choice. And it's interesting that 
Laurie said that this started out as a satire, but as she began to dig deeper into the characters in the story, she realised that she didn't want to make them into satirical caricatures. Now, that's not to say there isn't room for caricatures and satire. There is, absolutely. That's tonally, that's something that I enjoy and has, you know, endured for a very, very long time. But if you're, if the tone of your book is becoming more and more serious, then you need to match the characters to the tone. So if you're doing a satire, like recently we had um, the film Don't Look Up on Netflix, which is essentially about the end of the world, and it's uh, a satire of you know the way that governments work and and the way that social media warps the way that we think and all that kind of thing. And it's it's done from a very satirical point of view and it's all heightened. But there's also you know they could have written a much more serious and grim version of that story that was a lot more realistic and and dug a bit deeper into the characters. So I think you have a choice as a writer um, when it comes to tone. But I think the tone has to match the characters. And, and how deep you dig with something like that. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It does. I actually started watching Don't Look Up uh, over Christmas and uh, I found the whole kind of um, way it played a social media a bit ridiculous. Like it was, just, it was so, I mean, it was definitely caricaturing what was happening in the real world, but um, it, 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 it took us, it took us, it took us, we had to watch that in three shifts. Yeah, it was like, it was we, we got film. about 45 minutes in, it's like, that's enough. Let's take a break for a day. That's, that's what happened it. to us. Yeah, we didn't so much say, right, no, we're not feeling this. It was like, just need to take a break from this because it's it was it was a lot to take in. Um, the, other, the other thing that was really interesting that Laurie talked about was this idea of the lessons that we learn as writers when we're forced or we force ourselves to write from the perspective of someone that we completely disagree with or detest or, or, and, and it brings me back actually, weirdly enough, it got me thinking about our interview with Sir Brian Cranston. Um, if you missed that, that was the <laughs> sixth episode of the bestseller experiment right out the gate. Sir we, Brian. We, we landed Sir Brian, <laughs> Sir Walter of Whitedom. And, um, the thing that he said, do you remember we asked him the question because it was around the time that Trump was was pre-Trump. It was the pre-election yeah. um, of the of the of, of oh, the. Oh, remember those days? Oh, that was so long ago. But he he said the person he would most like to play. Do you remember we asked him that question? Who would you most like to play? And he said the person he'd most like to play would be Trump in a movie. But he mm. said that he had to get some distance from what was going on in order to be able to really get into the mind of Trump and come from his viewpoint and his perspective in the world. And, and when Laurie started talking about this idea of, you know, how do you get into the, you know, into the mind of someone that you, you don't agree with, you don't see the world in the same way. And the conclusion she drew was really fascinating, wasn't it? This idea that actually it doesn't define that person, a viewpoint that they have or a political leaning they have. It doesn't define that person. And by going into their head, it makes you more, more kind of, um, empathetic i guess in some ways absolutely there's always a root cause you know to there's always something that makes us the way we are and you know nature versus nurture how we grew up but you know family around us all that kind of thing you know no one is born angry or prejudiced or bitter or whatever some something is usually made them that way and that's part of what we do when we create characters we're we're creating fictional avatars of the people we see around us. So uh, certainly in my first uh, Woodville book, The Crow Folk, there's a character in that called Craddock 
who is a poacher and he's racist, he's misogynistic, he's a thief. Um, but I worked very, very hard to make you feel sorry for him when, slight spoiler, he, he comes to a, a, you know, a rather unfortunate end. And there's a point in the book where Faye, the hero, she says, look, if we'd spoken to him, maybe we wouldn't have this problem. And that's my feeling about so much of the world around us. If we, like Laurie says, if, if you sit down and talk to Trump supporters in your family or people who have any kind of extreme views or people who you feel are acting in a kind of blinkered or prejudiced way, rather than condemn them, sit down and talk to them. Yeah. And then you might discover there's, you, you, you always discover there's some kind of, yeah, there's some kind of common ground where you can meet. And that's what I think you have to do as a writer is you are putting yourself in the feet of someone that you might find problematic or difficult. But if you just, you know, yes, if you're doing satire, you can make them a larger than life ogre, uh, which is fun while it lasts. But I think if you want the writing to have some kind of uh, heft, then you you have to dig a little bit deeper. And it, it really brings me back to this idea that, you know, this bigger idea of us through this podcast, really trying to understand, discover what writing is really about, right? They kind of get this sense that we're, we're really digging below the surface here. And I do think that writing as an exercise, it's not just about, you know, I mean, there's so many, so many benefits to it, but one of the really big benefits I'm realizing now is it really helps us become more compassionate, empathetic human beings through writing about people that we otherwise wouldn't necessarily research or even try to meet or try to understand. We have to understand all our characters, the minds of all our characters, to really make them strong, real characters in the reader's mind. And so it forces us to go beyond, say, a threshold that we otherwise, in normal, everyday, non-writing life, might not push ourselves to do. And that, to me, is huge, because I think part of our, and without obviously taking this into a kind of a very, very deep, deep spiritual dimension. But really, like, what is the quest in life? Why, why are we here? Part of why we're here is to is to learn, is to learn more and to become more empathetic and to be better people, you know, through our journey and try and leave in the world a better place than we found it. Or at least, you know, <laughs> leave, <laughs> leave no trace, as it were. But <laughs> I think writing actually helps us. It does help us as a practice, it forces us in many ways to explore that. So, you know, when people think about writing just for the sake of writing a book, I think there's actually a lot more that we get from it. So much more than we can ever even imagine. Yeah. I've, I've, I've said many times that writing is how I make sense of the world. You know, I, I'm bombarded by the news and social media and other people and, and things happening all around us. And I, distill that into into stories and characters and situations and um it's how i sort of it's like a mental sift you know you 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 try and figure out and make sense of of the the mad world that we live in yeah i hope hope one day in about 75 years from now when we're long gone mark i hope somebody goes through our five six how many ever years of all these podcasts and pulls all these things out and puts them into some kind of compendium because i think that 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 we, we realize as we do this more and more that writing is a gateway into the world, which no other mechanism or route allows you to kind of see 
the wealth of that. There's nothing else out there that it comes close. And it, in itself, it's as a lifelong pursuit, I think it's so, so important to do. Are, are you saying that this podcast has basically solved the meaning of life, the universe and everything? I think I think maybe in about three episodes, possibly. Okay. <laughs> Watch this space. That's the spoiler, by the way, everyone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> End <Subscribe>. of January. <laughs> <laughs> End of January, we're going to have the uh, the uh, the meaning of life episode where we uh, explain we, we connect every single thing that we've learned <laughs> into one magic moment, and it will be a number, won't you, Mark? Yeah. It'll be yeah. it'll be a number. It might have a decimal, mm. but um, brilliant stuff. So so much more, so much more to to delve in there. But uh, if you like this kind of chat, if you're sitting there going, I wish I could get involved with with Mark and Mark chatting about this in the post discussions we have about interviews, we do this actually on the academy. Um, every week you can join Mr. Stay and other Academy members to go deeper on these points that we're discussing right now. So if you're interested in becoming a part of that, as one of the many benefits you get from being in the Academy and really stretch yourself, really push yourself and learn and go deep, then the Academy is for you. So pop over to academy.bestsellerexperiment.com. Uh, Mr. Stay, social media. Yeah. Well, it's that time of year. When lots of people are making declarations, public declarations, what they're going to do in 2022, uh, a lot of them have gone in the diary. So we had one from Kerry Oman uh, over on the BXP group on Facebook. Uh, she says a couple of interesting ones here. Uh, public declaration by March 31st, Kerry says, I will have a dedicated writing space. That's an interesting one. You know, having that proper space where you can sit, and write and concentrate. And then she says, by December 31st, I will have written... 200,200 words. I like what you did there, Kerry, uh, which is a, she says, which is a 500 daily average plus 10% for a challenge. And then she says, and also by December 31st, she will have published one book in her urban fantasy series. So Kerry. Kerry is rocking it. She it's in the diary, Kerry. It's in the diary. And I, and I want to say to everyone who thinks, but I can't, I don't have a, I can't have a separate writing space. Remember, a writing space is just a designated area that you say, this is where I write. It can be the corner of a table that already exists in your house, but it's about making a decision in your life. This is going to be my dedicated writing space. And the reason why that's important, folks, is when you sit in that space, things change. You get into that zone and it's that's why that's so important. So I encourage my, everyone to try it. Yeah, my dedicated writing space was a particular seat that I liked on the 825 right. from your west into London Waterloo. Um, what would happen if someone <laughs> was sitting in that seat, Mark? What 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 broke out on the on the train at eight eight o'clock in the morning? Uh, I would keep thumping them on the head with my laptop until they moved. <laughs> no, I, I found I found another seat. Um, but yeah, usually the train was quite empty because it started at Epsom and I was the first stop after Epsom, so I'd get on and I always got my favourite seat. It's tragic, I know, but it was my writing space. I you it know. works whatever floats your boat right i mean yeah, at the end of the yeah. day it's do you know what though I, i'm doing a lot on routine this year routines and habits and the essential nature of them to help us in our lives it's all part of um the life library i've been talking about but yeah that and that you know that routine worked for you um it's better to have something than to be living in chaos and uh we are creatures of habit absolutely thrive on it i think we are i think we are so from kerry's very specific declaration over on the facebook group as well. We've got Joe Ruith, who says, this is a bit more vague. Joe says, in 2022, I will do stuff, novel stuff, short story stuff, even some drawing and painting stuff, and I will finish stuff. Good luck, Joe. That's lovely and vague. <laughs> I enjoyed that. But uh, Joe will no doubt do that. Um, 
I'll maybe put that in the diary. There isn't a date, you know, but uh, if you want to give me something more specific, I'll put it in there, Joe. <laughs> so thank you for that. Thank you so much for that. Um, good luck. Uh, over on the Academy, a bit of good news from uh, Deborah Lloyd. This is how the Academy works for people, folks. This is this is what, you know, just one of the many things that people are getting at. Uh, Deborah says um, she's written a 10,000-word story called Medicine Bow, which she wrote last year. She's tried to restructure the story to begin at a later point in the saga, the point of no return, so to speak, and then fill in the history. But she found herself getting lost as she tried to write her way through the second edit. And she said, Mark D recommended putting the beats of the story on the index cards. I finished doing that today and found myself peeking through the brick wall, liking what I saw and ready to jump back into the rewrite. See, this is what the Academy is. It's all of us exchanging, swapping advice, Deborah made a little breakthrough there and uh you know it's onwards upwards that's what it's all about it's a community where we help you make these things happen brilliant absolutely fantastic and a a wonderful bit of news from uh chris everhart uh, over on the academy as well chris says yesterday i accepted an offer to join the team at a fairly new publisher who is trying hard to work in the new creator economy and do it right. More details on the who and where later. What this means for my writing is I finally have someone to write for. I'd like to have deadlines and somehow to show my work to, just like when I was a little kid. So I'll be developing some new ideas in the YA, urban fantasy, horror categories, and I've committed to, drumroll, six books this year, possibly spanning spanning two new series and the publisher will also be republishing chris's existing series the delphi trilogy so there will be announcements coming soon chris what an amazing bit of news absolutely absolutely phenomenal when i read that in the academy community my heart absolutely leapt um you messaged me straight away didn't you (laughs) well yeah i did i did it was phenomenal so congratulations chris and um, this is these are the, these are the kind of milestone moments that that we live for in on the podcast and the academy when people kind of you know break through. But I love what Chris said about he's finally found someone to write for. Like that is that's probably what's missing from so many people's lives right now. It's like who do you write for? Who do you write for? And he's now got a mission and this idea of writing six. I mean, Chris is already you know knocking it out of the park. He's he's been working on his craft. You know. And he, he deserves every success he's going to get and has had, but quite phenomenal that, you know, he's connected this idea where he's, he can now write for someone. He's on a mission. This is not about him just showing up and trying to scratch his head and work out what to write next. And, um, this is where the momentum really, really kicks in. So, so Chris, we wish you all the best six novels. I can't wait to hear how that goes. And I think Mark, we might be inviting Chris on to do uh, an Academy All-Stars uh, special on the podcast. It does. It? Yeah, 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 yeah. So watch this space if you want to find out more about what this creator economy is, because I'm fascinated in that area. That is a whole, that is going to be such a massive part of our writing future, folks. So if you're not really very aware of this idea of the creator economy, then, you know, tune into that episode when we, when we, when we do that with Chris, because uh, I'm sure we'll all learn a lot from him as well. Well, indeed. So thank you, everyone, for getting in touch. If you want to drop us a line, you can find us at bestsellerexperiment.com. There's a contact tab there. Or on social media, uh, Twitter and Instagram, we are at bestsellerxp. On Facebook, we are bestsellerexperiment. And if you've enjoyed this episode and got any kind of glimmer of inspiration from it, do give us a rating, preferably a positive one, uh, wherever you get your podcast from, because it helps make us more visible, helps us reach more and more writers, helps make more of these writing dreams come true. So uh, yeah, 
do that, please. Brilliant stuff. And if you don't know yet, we do have a YouTube channel. Come over and subscribe to the YouTube channel. You can see us in our little respective writing spaces um, recording this each week. So do pop over. And thank you to, to JD and Dave who make all the magic happen behind the scenes with that. Um, and I will also say that if you are interested in finding out more about the Life Library that I'm building this year, you can pop over to 4000saturdays.com and sign up to get more news on that when it launches. Uh, 200wordchallenge.com if you want to start your writing habit for a lifetime. And of course, if you want to join us in the Academy, try it for 30 days. Pop along academy.bestsellerexperiment.com. Mark, I can't wait to hear the rest of the news over the next. This is going to be a bonkers couple of weeks, isn't it? I can just feel it already. Exciting times, exciting times. And I'm glad to be on this journey with you and look forward to hearing more as to how the film Unwelcome uh, launches in less than, less than, almost two months or around two months. Two months. About two months. Two months. Yeah. Eight weeks. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Brilliant stuff. Excellent. So with that in mind, folks, stay, stay tuned. Tune into us next week for the unraveling of all of these incredible things happening. And it's a goodbye from Mark 1. And a goodbye from Mark 2. Goodbye. Goodbye.